Open your Bibles with me this morning as we turn to Hebrews, the 8th chapter again. <clears throat> Hebrews, the 8th chapter. This morning I will treat the very final verse, verse 13. In preparation for that, and since we preach in context, I'm going to read chapter 8 in its entirety to put us in the book in the right place to bring this concluding which is actually a springboard to the next three chapters. But let's begin by looking at verse 1, chapter 8 through 13. Please follow along as I read. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, quote, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. End quote. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. But finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be mercy to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning, shall we? Lord God, as we bow before you, we would lift up our prayers to you and desire an answer from you. Lord, hear our cry, our cry for knowledge, our cry for wisdom, and we beg for understanding with regard to your word, with regard to the Mosaic covenant, the law, and with regard to the new covenant which you proclaim and under which we live, Lord, give us the right view, the right understanding. 
such that our faith will be so increased that our walk will be strong in the face of all who see us and that men and women and children will be drawn to the gospel of the new covenant in Christ which we bring. Lord, bless this message to that purpose. We beg in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 8, the main point is presented. It has very strong attachment to the prior seven verses, but it can be seen more clearly as a springboard that is an introduction to the following chapters and verses in Hebrews. So what is contained in the knowledge of a new high priest who is a mediator of a better covenant based on better promises, and that new covenant that is recitated here from the prophet Jeremiah will be further explained, further explained. God is going to help us. And he's going to help us this morning by seeing appropriately and rightly how high it is that we should view the new covenant and how we are in need, all of us, of putting the old covenant, the Mosaic law, in its proper place in time and in history and for practice. We will do that this morning. By introduction, I believe I was led to Luke chapter 12, verses 33 and 34. The words of Jesus, parabolic forms as he has just told of a man who had so much wealth that he decided to tear down his barns, build new barns, store all his wealth in them, sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. His wealth was on earth. And in the parable he is called a fool because... He would die that very night with his barns full of wealth. And the message is he would die with nothing because his focus was on the earth. He gives us this lesson following in the text, verse 33 of Luke 12. Jesus says, sell what you have and give alms. Provide for yourselves money bags, listen, money bags that do not grow old. Money bags that do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, nor moth destroys. And then he says this, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your valuables are, your mind is going to be upon them. I didn't read verse 32 on purpose because I wanted to double back on it for effect. So here's the effect. Verse 32 of chapter 12, Jesus says, Do not fear, little flock. I think he's talking right to us. Do not fear, little flock, for a little flock we are. 
He goes on to say, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God wants to. It is his pleasure to give you his kingdom. That's a whole other way of thinking about God, isn't it? That there's a treasure, a kingdom coming. That is what should be the focus of our lives, not our wealth on earth, but our wealth calls out to us, doesn't it? Even our insignificant things, what little wealth we have, we want to keep. We want to center on it. And I don't say just you alone, this pulpit's convicted as well. But here is the new covenant and the essence of it. The new covenant is revealed as a list of faultless promises. Faultless promises given by God himself, upheld by God himself, guaranteed by God himself. And even the fallibility of you and I, of all men, of all Israel, and all Judah, cannot thwart these promises. They are given, they will be done. So today we've been, and over the last few days, we've been presented with the faultless the faultless gifts of God that have been presented in this new covenant. We've seen the faultless responsibilities found where God himself says, I will, I will, I will. We've seen the faultless restitutions where indeed God is bringing back his own people to himself and they shall be my people and I will be their God, the they shalls. Then we saw the last two faultless repudiations found here in this text in verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, which means we're guilty. The guilty get mercy, not the innocent. And they're unri- uh, merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. He says, I will remember no more. This is the new covenant guaranteed by God. Our role is simply to believe this and then live in a way that evidences we believe this. And so, this final verse, I'm giving a full sermon because this is the faultless recreation. Today we're presented with the faultless recreation of the new covenant, if you will, that dovetails with the Abrahamic covenant so that we will come to depend upon this covenant This covenant which will never grow old or fail, it is a money purse that never wears out. It never fails. The Faultless Recreation, chapter 8, verse 13. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. To recreate something from the past. God now brings us to the new covenant. The Abrahamic covenant brought back to his own people in fuller, finer form. A new covenant that supersedes the Mosaic covenant. In this there is the promise of obsolescence. Obsolescence. What is obsolete For the faulty first covenant. 
Remember, verse 8, for finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. The fault was with the people. They couldn't keep the covenant. By the way, if you try to keep the Mosaic covenant, you won't keep it either. You can't. And it's not for our day. That is what I'm going to teach today, is what do we do with the Mosaic covenant? What do we do with it? Is it not full of good things? And indeed it is. Does it not teach us something about God? It very much does. And even in Corinthians, we are told that the old covenant and the old laws were written for our instruction. Written for our instruction, but not written for us to keep. The law of Moses teaches us about the character of a holy God, which will always be true. He is always unapproachable by sin, and it takes complete righteousness to approach him, hence the clean, unclean of the law. And it is only through the ministration of blood that one's sins can be removed, and it was symbolic of that. But now everything that the Mosaic law had in figurative form, had in symbolic form, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so there is an obsolete nature to the Mosaic covenant. What is obsolete? This is a word from our text. The English translation is correct. Obsolete. It means to make ancient or old. In the passive, to become old, to be worn out. Those of things worn out by time and use. Hence, we read this very word in English, that which does not grow old. Provide yourself money bags which do not grow old, which do not become obsolete. You've got a hole in your wallet, my friend, and you're leaking money. Get a new one is the obvious answer, is it not? That is where we're going. But in this case, within our text, we have this word in the Greek preceded by an article. By an article. The obsolete, if you will. And that gives it a particular definition in its Greek form. So this form of obsolete means this. To declare. Listen. To declare a thing to be old. And so about to be abrogated. So someone in authority over it is declaring it to be useless. Like a mother who has authority over her child, who wants to wear that favorite pair of pants all the time, and the knees are worn out. And the mother says to the child, you're not wearing that pair of pants again. It's old. I declare it to be useless. Give them to me. Now, I've seen a lot of young ladies walking around our community whose moms need to tell them, your pants have holes in them. But I'm just saying that for free. I'm not making any further commentary. 
Just when I was a kid, holes were not a good thing in your clothes or in your socks. It's time to throw them away and get something new. So this passive form with the article means to declare something that is about to pass away and be abrogated. The English word abrogated is really great, but both of these terms require authority. For something to be abrogated, it means to be abolished by authoritative action, and that is exactly what's happening here in Hebrews. The authority of God, very God, is speaking about the Mosaic law, and he is saying, it's old. It's obsolete. I have given you a new one. Give me that old pair. You're done with it now. That is the essence of this message. Even when Hebrews began to teach us, we read these words, a quotation from the Old Testament in reference directly to Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10, he said to this, whom has he ever said these words? And then the second set, he said this in verse 10, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. So he's even talking about Jesus being creator God, and Jesus indeed was part of the creative process of the earth, of the heavens, and all that we know in the material world. But then notice, here's where we find our Greek word for obsolete come up again in verse 11. They will perish, but you, Jesus, God, remain... They will grow old like a garment. There's your word. Did you know the earth that you are walking on right now is growing old like a garment? It is becoming obsolete. And God is going to replace this world, this earth, with a new heaven and what? A new... So which one are you going to hang on to? Is your treasure in heaven or on earth? That's a question. Like a cloak, you, God, will fold them up and they will be changed. But you, God, are the same and your years will not fail. It is Isaiah in the 50th chapter in the 8th verse who said, who is my ad adversary speaking for God? Let him come near me. Whew. There's a line in the sand. Who's going to contend with God? Who's the adversary of God? God says, who is my adversary? Step on up. Verse 9, surely the Lord will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Now we see he's talking of Christ. Indeed, they all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Even the adversaries of God here on earth are growing old and they're passing away. Even those who contend with Jesus when he died on the cross and who contend with him today and are adversaries of God, they're becoming obsolete. 
You know, we're used to going to the grocery store, and Talon understands this every time he touches his department in the store. Being the dairy department, there are use dates on every single thing. Best if used by. And as I understand in the world of dairy products, it actually means something. You might want to pay attention. You've had this in the fridge for a long time, and you read on that thing, oh yeah, boy, March 2022. That's about a year. Oh well, I didn't open it. It's got to be good, right? Well, it's become obsolete for human consumption, unless, of course, you want other things to happen. But it's obsolete for food. We understand that historically the stagecoach became obsolete because of the railroad. The railroad basic almost, at least in our country, by the airplane. In communication, the Pony Express was replaced by the telegraph, the telegraph by the telephone, the cell phone by the smartphone. Or is it? I'm just asking a question. Each one obsolete in its turn and cast by the wayside. You might like that rotary phone that was in your grandma's house, but who's actually using it and why would you? Vinyl records. Huh? I hear they're coming back though. Vinyl records replaced by the reel-to-reel. -reel. My day if you had a reel-to-reel. -reel. Oh, you're a cool baby which was then replaced by the eight-track player. Oh, yes, every track, click. And then by the cassette tape, which was then replaced by the CD player, each obsolete in their turn by the iPod, by the smartphone with the eight app uh, called Pandora, which I would never open up just on principle. I've read Greek mythology and there was nothing good in there. I'm not preaching on that as we're really trying to make a joke. Even in our churches and our classrooms, the overhead projector of old. The overhead projector. Replaced by different things, even slide projectors. What's this thing in our church here? It's some kind of projector. I don't even know what it's called. But it projects stuff off the computer. And there you go. So I want to remind you of something this morning that, and it is this, that just like these things from our historical past that were once useful and necessary, they've been replaced by other things appropriately. And I want to remind you as well that God is not obligated to continue to use something he has made or directed for the use of his people for all time unless he says it is for all time. Nor does it have to be used every time if he says it's for a temporary period of time. Their time has come. The time of the Mosaic Law has come. It's past its use date. Don't drink it. Learn from it, but don't try to follow it. And I want to show you that in the Bible, God has a pattern of making things obsolete, and man also has a pattern of inappropriately and unrightly trying to deal with God's obsolete items and dictates. 
Let's look at biblical examples of the obsolete. Biblical examples of the obsolete. And this is going to feed into our acceptance that the Mosaic law is now obsolete. It's been stated clearly in Scripture, but this isn't anything new, and we shouldn't treat it like it's something new for God to use something and then set it aside. So I bring you in the first place to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is our first example of something that was used for a period of time, and then it became obsolete. So this is an obsolete form for sustaining human life. The obsolete form for sustaining human life, the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were in their innocence, God placed them there. Listen to Genesis speak. Genesis 2.8, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. See, even there, there was work. What's man designed for? Man's designed for work. That's the end of that sermon. That's for free, but it was right there, so I took it. Genesis 3.22, we learn more about the garden of Eden. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. Well, what happened? Well, the serpent entered the Garden of Eden, tempted Eve. Eve took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she ate, and she gave to her husband Adam, Adam and he knowingly broke the law, the law of God, for that was the one law they'd been given. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest you die. They did it. Here's the consequence. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Notice the plural, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one of us, God to know good and evil. And now, listen, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. See, if they would have eaten of the tree of life in the garden, they would have lived in the state of sin for all eternity. Man would have been eternally lost. And so there was a need to close the door on the garden of Eden and its usefulness for the protection of man and to fulfill the plan of God that we actually have coming to fruition in the new covenant, and it goes like this. Verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him, this is Adam, out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a, and a flaming sword which turned every way, listen, to guard the way to the tree of life. God put a protective cherub angel with a sword to protect man from that. And then there was a flood. But you know what man has been trying to do? Even when I was a child, I remember this. Men have been looking for the Garden of Eden. If you read your Bible, that's where you learn of the Garden of Eden. No other place. This is from God. And then man wants to go back and find this Garden of Eden and get in. God said, I'm going to protect you from that. Put an angel with a sword there. And man says, well, I want it. It's obsolete. You can't have it. And it's dangerous for you to go there. But what does man want to do? Let's try and find it. Well, good luck. The flood actually destroyed the earth. And uh, speaking of the flood, 
let's go to another obsolete item, an obsolete form of deliverance that God used in the past and will never use again. It's obsolete. And that is called, can you help me with this one? Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark is an obsolete form of the deliverance of God from death, from destruction. So bad had man become on the earth that God determined to destroy the earth and man and everything that lived in it. And this is the account, Genesis 6, 13. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them in the earth with the earth. Make yourself, he says, to know an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's with 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. Note, the reason the Garden of Eden became obsolete was the sin of man. The reason the first earth became obsolete was because of the sin of man. And the reason Noah's Ark became obsolete is the sin of man. That's why it was even needed. Reading on in Genesis 6, now verse 17, we read, And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on earth shall die. Listen to verse 18. Here's hope. But I will establish my covenant with you, Noah. This began with God said to Noah. So I will establish my covenant with you. We call this the Noahic covenant. Promise. He promised him something. And you shall go into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. And he goes on to describe the entirety of the promise. But I want to take you down to Romans 8 now, to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Now the flood has come. The fountains of the deep have opened up and flooded, and the rain came down for 40 days. The ark and all the animals in it have been raised up and have been floating around. And in chapter 8, we pick it up. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were, in, that were with him in the ark. It doesn't mean God forgot. This is a, a formal way of saying God directly is putting his mind toward the purposes of what is going to happen to them next. And God made the wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And verse 3 says, And the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. Now pay attention here. Then the ark rested on the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. They get off the ark. They go do what God says, fill the earth and multiply. But what does man want to do 
with the ark. Man wants to try and find the ark. Men are still searching for the ark, searching for the correct mountain, Mount Ararat. Why do you suppose God put that thing up on a high mountain? Well, maybe obviously the first reason it was the first dry ground and he put it there. But I think he probably put it on that high mountain because what's man going to do? Try and find the ark. The ark was to save eight people alive and all the animals. And then it became, hear me, obsolete. Well, how do we believe? Don't we need to find the ark? Don't we need to find Noah's ark to prove that God did this? Is that how men believe? Here's real evidence. Now I believe. No, that's not how men believe. You could show them the ark right now and they won't. I hear somebody somewhere rebuilt a replica of the ark. Many people go there. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's an obsolete form of the deliverance of God from before the flood to starting again after the flood and it's not going to work for you. If you try and get saved by the ark of Noah, you'll have a physical delivery, not a spiritual delivery, and you're going to be dead, even if you could find it. It's obsolete. But what does man always want to do? Go back. Let's find this thing. we got to see it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I know there was an ark. You know how I know? The Bible tells me so. The greatest evidence we have of Noah's ark, here, the word of God. And that we're still here. And so are the animals. That's evidence. But the greatest evidence is it's written in the word of God that God told Noah to do it, Noah did it, his family got on it, and we believe it. Our believing of it doesn't make it true. The fact that God said it makes it true. The ark of Noah is obsolete. Get used to it. Quit looking for it. There's other things for Christians to do. The ark of the covenant an obsolete form of the presence of God. The third obsolete item I want to point out. By the way, this is just a short list, not the long list. I had to cut it back or you'd be here till three. The Ark of the Covenant. An obsolete form of the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant was in and to be placed in the tabernacle of God. And it had an express purpose. Listen. Exodus 25, verse 10. Here's the instructions. And they made an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. I want to now skip to verse 17. 
And you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be the length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of the one piece with the mercy seat. This is part of the Mosaic law. It was given to them by commandment to do this. And mercy was dispensed from that place where God was present. That's why it rings for the Hebrew, for the Israelite. This new covenant, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, that's part of the new covenant. What was partial then is now full form in the new covenant. But I want you to read a little bit farther in Exodus chapter 25, look at verse 22, and it says, and there God says, I will meet with you. What's the most significant thing about the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant that was in the most holy place is that one thing. The reality that God's very presence was there and he would meet with man. And over that, I will speak with you from above the mercy seat and from between the two cherubim which are on the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the Testimony, as it's also known, about everything which I give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So it was meant to bring God to men. But remember this, not all men could go in there. Only the high priest could go in there the holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, and the high priest could only go in one time per year. That's not a lot of access, folks. He's there. He's in your midst. You need to keep these holiness laws. You need to evidence yourself as being God's people by keeping them. But no, nothing unclean comes before me lest you die. So why is the new covenant better? Because we have a new high priest who when he died on the cross, the veil was rent in two that separated man from God. And Jesus, as it told us here in Hebrews, has passed through the heavenly tabernacle and he is in the presence of God as our great high priest every single day. Making intercession for us. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He can because he was human, who is on all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us, therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace, where we may receive mercy. And I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and find grace in time of need, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. See the difference? The Ark of the Covenant was a temporary way of approach for Israel. 
And in A.D. 70, the temple is destroyed and the ark is gone and man is now wondering, where's the ark of the covenant? Where's the ark of God? And man sets out to find it. And there are treasure seekers where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. Even from my youth, I'm going there a lot today, I guess, forgive me. There was a movie made. Indiana Jones. And what was the rest of the title? Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Searching for the Ark of the Covenant because it has great power. We need that. We want that. It's obsolete. Why did God hide it from us, do you think? Why is the ark of Noah on a high mountain so you can't find it? Why is the ark of the covenant destroyed and you can't find it? Because man would worship it. Man would cling to it. Man would try to follow it and not what God has prescribed for today. That's just how we are. See, if you want the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant is not the place to go. Without being high priest, without the proper authority to be there, without the proper sacrifice to be there, you would die for your sin. But we have a different presence. God came down in the New Covenant, the New Testament age, and he came down in this way, says a witness of him, John 1. John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What was the significance of Jesus Christ coming? It was so much better than the Ark of the Covenant because it was God in human form come to men to dwell among us, not to tabernacle in the tabernacle and once a year man to go in there, but to tabernacle with us. He dwelt with us. He was on earth with us. And we beheld his glory, John says, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I have said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received. And grace for grace. Listen to verse 17 of John 1. For the law was given through Moses, and it was good, but it's obsolete. And the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You want the presence of God, you go to Jesus. You want to see him, go to Jesus. You want to know him, you read the word that he is. This is the living word of God. And the Ark of the Covenant needs to stay lost. For the Levitical priests an obsolete form of mediating the covenant. The Levitical priest, Aaron, his sons, and the tribe of Levi, Exodus 28. For Aaron's son, for Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics, and you shall make sashes for them, and you shall make hats for them, for glory and for beauty. Huh? Tell me God doesn't like art and fashion. 
This is God's fashion. See, ladies, that's for free. I'm not just hard guy that doesn't understand fashion. For glory and for beauty, namely God's, but so you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them. Listen, that they may minister to me, God says, as priests. But what did Hebrew say? What did Hebrew say about these priests? They were at once consecrated. They were at one time sanctified. They were one time anointed by God to be the priests that would represent God to the people and the people to God. Well, Hebrew said, we have studied chapter 7, verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, if completeness, if salvation, if all of it was through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need was there, Hebrews asks, that another priest should rise according to, according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Aaron? That is an appropriate, wise, and reasonable question. What reason would there be? Well, here it is. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. Jesus is the high priest of the order of Melchizedek, not from the tribe of, Eli, of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah. And he is so by the very oath of God. You are a high priest forever. Not temporarily, forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so he goes on to say in Hebrews 7, verse 15, And it is yet far more evident, if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. The Mosaic law was primarily external activities that did not save. External sacrifice that in and of themselves did not save and could not save. The people had to believe that for a temporary period of time, God was covering their sins by their faith in him when they brought their sacrifices and the priests offered them. But it was for a temporary time, as we've studied in Galatians, while Israel was growing up. The law was their tutor until they came to maturity, but maturity is in Christ. But what does man try to do, knowing that these Levitical priests have been laid by the wayside, are part of the law, and you can't keep the law without them, nor can you have them without the law? What do we do? Let's make us some priests. Let's put some fine clothes on them. Let's make something fashionable for beauty, and for our own glory. And there you have the abominations that have come in through the Catholic, I should say the Roman Catholic Church, through the Mormon Church. And even some of the vestments are getting awfully close in some of the other denominations. There are no priests that minister as mediators of this covenant, this new covenant, aside from one, Jesus.
And if you have any other one, you have another fallen man who can do nothing for your fallenness. But Jesus has an endless life for he never sinned. He never fell. He died and rose again and he lives forever. So we need not cardinals. We need not bishops. We need not monks. We need not friars. We need what God says for this age, pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry until we all come to the measure of the stature of of the fullness of Christ by reading Christ's word. And how about the priestly instruments? I'm not done yet. I haven't even landed yet. The priestly instruments are obsolete forms for communicating God's will. Some of you know these, but this is going to bring them back to your attention that these were things that were used under the law and are now obsolete. People have always wanted to know, what shall I do? What's God's will? Don't we want to do that today? What did God have me do? And we see that in the Old Testament. David asks, oh, the Philistines have come up. He asks, Lord, shall I go up against them? And the Lord will give an answer. Yes, go up against them. I've delivered them into your hand. And various other questions could be asked. And they were answered in various means. Notice this. The first of them that is now obsolete is the casting of Lots. You had it. The casting of lots. That was a way in which God would communicate his will in the Old Testament. Proverbs 16.33. Listen to this. You probably read it and wondered, hmm? Well, here it is. Verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Notice he didn't say your gambling habit is from the Lord. This was a way of finding out what God had to say. Even when Israel entered the land, and I had to cut down on the casting of Lot's material because I knew like I'm actually doing, I'm running out of time. But let's go to the division of the land when Israel came into the promised land. How did they divide the land to the different tribes? Who gets what? Well, they divided it up by the casting of Lot's. In Numbers 26, 55, we read, And the land shall be divided by Lot. They shall inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers, according to their lot. Their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and the smaller. And so if somebody got this piece of land and they weren't too happy, the tribe of Dan, if you will, or the tribe of Issachar, they would have to just say, well, that's just your lot in life. I'm sorry, it was just too good. <laughs> but it was by God's divine dictate. So that priestly instrument of being able to find out God's will is now no longer operable. And how about this one? The ephod. The ephod, which was part of the vestments of the priest, it seems like it went on his chest, and listen to the way it was, uh, way it was made and how it was used. Exodus 28. They shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and the fine linen, and they shall make the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread. The fine woven linen, artistically worked. It shall have two shoulder straps joined at its two edges, and so it shall be joined together. And the intricately woven band of the ephod, which is on it, shall be of the same workmanship made of gold blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. 
Now, how did they use that? Well, let me take you to the days of the judge and prophet Samuel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 23, we find David. And it says in verse 9, when David knew that Saul plotted against evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest. Now listen, he asked the priest. This is part of the vestments of a priest. He said, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keliah and destroy the city for my sake. Now he asked this question, will the men of Keliah, will they deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down, as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. Now listen. And the Lord said, he will come down. Ephod, priest, question, answer. And some of you are going to ask me, well, how did it work? And I'm going to tell you, I don't know. And I'm going to tell you something else. Nobody else does either. So even if we had one, we wouldn't be able to find out what God's will is because it's obsolete. It's past its use date. There are no priests. There is no place to use it. How about this? The mysterious Urim and Thummim. The Urim and the Thummim. Remember that from reading your Old Testament? This is an obsolete form that God had of communicating his will. Exodus 28, 30. And you shall put in the breastplate of judgment, this is part of the, the priest's vestments, you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Now, I did this and put my hand over my right heart, but you know the Hebrew's heart was in a different place. And I don't mean that they had bad hearts. I just mean when they said heart, they meant their bowels, their guts, the innermost feelings. Okay, so when it says heart and ours, we've got to move it to the right place for them. When he goes before the Lord, shall have that over his heart. So Aaron shall bear, listen, the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart for, before the Lord continually. Somehow God communicated this way. Numbers 27, 21. He shall stand before Eliezer the priest, listen, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in. He and all his children of Israel with him, all the congregation. Well, how did that work? Well, it kind of worked like this. Ezra tried it as well, and Ezra got it done. And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till the priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. And once again, you might ask me, well, Pastor Fred, you've studied the Bible. What do they say is, is the Urim? And what do they say is the Thummim? And I will answer you again. I don't know. Well, does anybody know? No. Why? Because it's obsolete. So if you're really following the Mosaic law and you want to follow it and you want to do it all the right way and you want to hear from God the way they heard from God, you're going to need this ephod. 
You're going to need this Urim and the Thummim. You're going to need to cast lots. You're going to need a priest. You're going to need a temple. You're going to need an altar. You're going to need an ark. You're going to need sacrifice. You're going to need to be in Jerusalem at the temple at the right time, doing it the right way, or you get absolutely nothing because it's obsolete even if you could. Well, doesn't God speak to us? You might ask. How am I supposed to? If this is a better, a better covenant with better promises and a better high priest, how does God talk to me? Can't we, can't we find some Urim and some Thummim? You kind of want to, don't you? You just ain't going to say it now that I said obsolete. Or an ephod. Wouldn't it be cool if we had that little lamp that you rub and the genie comes out and you ask him the question and he answers it. And we know that we try and do stuff like that because we have those little eight ball things that used to be sold all the time. And you ask a question, you shake the eight ball thing up and you look at it and you actually would, people would actually do what it says. And then people will go to their, their newspapers or they'll go online and they'll check their horoscope. I mean, horoscope. Oh, this is ascending and this is coming down. You were born in this month and this is going to happen. Now go out and do this. It's your lucky day. Here's your lucky numbers. Who's tried that and won? Have you ever taken those Chinese food things? We're breaking the thing open. Here's your lucky numbers. Go down, spend money to try and get those be your lucky numbers and have won. I want to hear from you. But if they truly are, and if it truly was speaking, it would happen every time. A Chinese food would, a Chinese place would be overwhelmed with customers. Give me the, no, I want to start with dessert. No, 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 give me the cookie. I can eat later. The reality is in all of us to hear from God, and we want God, and we want to go back in time to hear from God the way he, he heard from God, ask questions like they ask questions from God, and I'm telling you, that is inferior, past its date, obsolete, and not for you. Okay, so we know not to do that, Pastor. What do we do? We go back to Hebrews 1. We go back to Hebrews 1. 1. How did this book start that would take clearly and completely away the Mosaic Law, chapter 7, by annulling it and using that word, chapter 8, verse 13, calling it obsolete, it begins this way. God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Ermin, Thuman, Ephod, Lot's prophets, has in these last days spoken to us. Spoken to us. You have been spoken to, Christian. You have been spoken to, non-Christian. Has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, listen, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the worlds. 
And what is this message that he has for us? What is this hope that he has for us? It says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and holding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself, listen, purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That's how the book started, God speaking. And he's telling you chapter 8, he's not talking to you through the old Mosaic covenant any longer, but through the new covenant high priest, Jesus Christ, his word revealed in this book. But, 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 but why can't I just... Do it the easy way. Show up and ask the priest and the Urim and the Thummim. Because God said, you're old enough to read. And you're old enough to go to church because that's where you hear the word of God explained to you. And when you want to know what the word of God is to you and his will, you go to the word of God and you follow it. And if you don't know, you can come to your pastors and your teachers and older brothers and sisters and they will say this is the wisdom of God from his word. Because see, Jesus is among us. And his word is here for us. As John said in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we have in Hebrews 8 and verse 13, an announcement of an obsolete law. The Mosaic law is obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. When did it vanish away? Let me read you these final words from Luke. Likewise he, Jesus, took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Did you hear that? This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which was shed for you. He established the new covenant with his own blood shed on the cross. And Hebrews is going to go on to lay this out. So I stop here. I'm landing the plane. Get your tray tables up, your seat belts buckled, and let's pray. <laughs> Father God, how glorious it is to know that you have the perfect time for us to live in and you have the perfect covenant and the perfect high priest under which we can live. His authority is the authority of God and his personage is the humanity of man and he can relate to us and he intercedes for us and he leads us and he's put his Holy Spirit in us. Lord God, let us believe that let us live in light of the new covenant and learn of it readily and run to it rapidly and follow it steadfastly for thy glory. Praise you, O God, from whom all blessings flow. And thank you for your Son, Jesus, our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, 
and his new covenant under which we stand. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.